First Timothy chapter six. Let's finish First Timothy this evening. We'll begin in verse seventeen, and we're going to go all the way through the final verse, verse twenty-one of First Timothy chapter six. Okay, let me read it together with you. You can read along as I read out loud. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or conceited, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may, be, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith grace be with you. The end. We're going to study this section, and really it's not difficult for us to see the connection. If you've been with us in any amount of time back, it's an obvious connection to verses 6 through 10 in 1 Timothy 6. Paul began in verse 6 talking about the true gain that comes in godliness with contentment. If you remember, he outlined for us and for young Timothy the dangers of for those who desire to be rich, so the implication is predominantly those who are not rich at the present time, but want to be, and the dangers of those who love wealth, love money. He branched off into a digression and targeted Timothy as the man of God who needed to flee these things and launched into a, a really a magnificent declaration and charge for Timothy at the conclusion of this letter in verses 11 through 16. And we studied that last week. The man of God is a runner. He flees. He runs away and he runs too. He's a fighter. He's a defender. And then finally, Paul concluded in verses 15 and 16 with a doxology, with a worship, with a, a final word betraying the greatness of God, which he will display at the proper time. Verse 15 says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of all lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And we think that's got to be the end of the letter. In fact, I would assume that as Timothy read this letter to the congregation of Ephesus, that would be a natural closing point. If they had a copy in their lap, which they didn't, they would have started to close it in hearing that doxology. But then Timothy gets uh, Paul's mind, goes roundabout, and comes back to what he was in in verses 6 through 10, and he comes back to this issue of wealth within the church and money and finances. And he begins in verse 17, as for the rich, as opposed to the poor. So the focal point, though not exclusively, the focal point of verses 6 through 10 is on those who are not rich in this present world, but who desire to be. And now verses 17 to 20, or 17 to 19, really, focus in on those who are rich and are within the church. And then 20 and 21 is the conclusion of the letter and the stewardship, not of money, but of the gospel that Timothy has been entrusted with. So this is definitely about stewardship. Here at the conclusion of this letter, it goes from finances to the man of God being faithful to his task to verses 17 and 19 talking about finances again and the rich and then concluding with Timothy 
seeing himself as a steward of a deposit, something that's been placed in his account. Now at the outset, let me say by way of introduction that it is obvious that we need instruction for rich within the church. I mean, that, that should be a no-brainer in American culture today because we are the richest people on the planet. We do not understand what poverty is. The poor in our country are richer than most in other countries around the world. And so it's important for us, each one of us, who live comfortable lives, who have excess, who have more than enough, more than we need. We are blessed beyond measure. We are rich in this present age to understand what it is that is before us, what our responsibilities are, and particularly tonight, what our dangers are, and then what our duties are as those who have been entrusted with riches in this present life. This is a great passage. It's crystal clear, and yet it's one that seems to be kind of breeze past. It's kind of overlooked here at the end of the letter. It's right there at that section where you get really excited to be done with your Bible reading and you're getting through a book and you just cruise, right? You hit cruise control, autopilot, you blast through and you're finished and you're on your way. And I, I think often we miss the weight of what we find in verses 17 to 21. Okay, so from the doxology that concluded uh, verse 16, Paul now returns to warn Timothy of the dangers and demands for those who are rich in this present world. And this is really information that Timothy needs to transfer on to others. Okay? Timothy is there. He is probably being compensated for his ministry. That was Paul's desire from 1 Corinthians 9, though Paul never partook of being supported full-time vocationally so that he would never be charged with being in ministry for the sake of money. Timothy probably was compensated at Ephesus, and many within the church at Ephesus, obviously enough of them that Paul had concern, were rich in this present age. It was a wealthy city. It was a city of commerce and business, and many would have been wealthy. So we're going to divide this up in just three sections, really. We're going to see the dangers for, for rich Christians, the duties of rich Christians, and then the end. Okay? That's going to be our very creative uh, headings for this evening's study. Really, the dangers are outlined for us in verse 17, then the duties in verses 18 and 19, and then the end is verse 20 and 21. Okay? So let's start with the dangers for the rich Christians. Verse 17 says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them, command them, your translation might have, not to be haughty, conceited, arrogant, nor to let their hopes, or to set their hopes, rather, on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So Paul calls on Timothy now to charge a group of people to speak a warning to the rich. And he gives him two warnings for these rich who are Christians. And understand from the beginning, the warning is not, you shouldn't be rich. First Timothy looks at riches as a stewardship. All wealth, all accumulation is a stewardship from God. So there is no blanket condemnation of riches. Rather, there is a warning that riches can lead us down a path that would be anything but Christian in his worldview. And riches demand of us certain outlets, certain duties, 
because of the stewardship that we've been given. So here are the warnings. Warning number one, do not become conceited in your wealth. As for the rich, charge them not to be haughty. Not to be haughty. Haughtiness is puffed up. It is arrogance. Arrogance, in particular, in this context, would have been pointed towards brothers and sisters in the church who were less wealthy than the Christian rich. So Paul says, warn the rich that they are not to become puffed up or elevated in their own eyes because of their accumulation of wealth. It is not grounds for some elevated mindset of your importance. Arrogance flies in the face. Conceitedness flies in the face of the virtue of the believer. In fact, it flies in the face of the mind of our Christ. We go back to a very familiar section, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2 is probably the call for humility. If you want to memorize a humility passage, this would be a good one. Verse 3 of Philippians chapter 2 says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only on his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourself, which, was, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him. The point here, the picture here that's outlined for us is that the Christian virtue of humility is the exemplary life of Christ who humbled himself by leaving his throne, by leaving his glory, by taking the form of a human being, by setting aside his prerogative, his right as God and creator and becoming a servant even to the point of death. The Christian life is a life of humility, right? It starts with poverty in spirit, Matthew chapter 5. Humility is the basis of all who will come to faith in Christ. We must come to the end of ourselves before we will ever come to the cross in humble faith. And so Paul warns the rich, there is a temptation for those who have much to become puffed up and to think highly of themselves because of what they have been entrusted with in this life right we know this is true this isn't something we need to elaborate on you know what it is to meet someone who is wealthy and is haughty at the same time there is a air about the rich that should not mark the rich within the church now warning number two comes right on the heels of it in verse 17 nor here's the second one nor are they to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So warning number two. Warning number one is do not become conceited in your wealth. Warning number two is do not become hopeful in your wealth. You should not be trusting your wealth. We are so prone to this. Are we not? We are so prone to using terminology like security. Uh, I'm, this is my security money. That is unchristian at its core. Because nothing in this life, no temporal possession, 
is to be our hope. We are not of this world. We are passing through. We are pilgrims. Pilgrims do not find their hope and their confidence in their covered wagon on the journey. They find their confidence and their hope in what they foresee as the future that they will enjoy. So the warning is, do not become hopeful or trusting in your wealth. And there are reasons given to us in verse 17. First of all, it's called the uncertainty of riches. Wealth is uncertain. Many men have gone to sleep rich, and when they woke up in the morning, they were poor. Riches come, riches go. There is an ebb and a flow to wealth. It is uncertain. It is not stable. It is not guaranteed. So it's useless for us to place our hope in something that could be gone tomorrow. What a tragedy it is to see someone who has placed their confidence and their hope and their joy in temporal possessions and to see that taken away and the vacuum that is caused by the exodus of those possessions. I want to see a tragedy on the face of someone. Watch the news when the fire is blazing through Southern California right before it hits their house, they're standing there in total shock. My life is invested in that house. That is everything that I live for. And when it goes, if it destroys their home, you watch someone who grieves the loss of their hope. What will we do? How will we go on? All that we had is taken away from us. Well, that's the reason that our hope is not to be grounded in the uncertainty of riches. Furthermore, in verse 17, Paul goes on to tell us more. Wealth is not only uncertain, but it is very temporal. It is here. It is now. While God, who is the giver of wealth, and that's the point, is eternal. So what is their hope to be set on in contrast to the temporal, uncertain riches? Is to be set on the eternal and unmoving God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. This is the classic case of getting lost in the gift and placing your confidence in the gift and missing the giver. It is the God who has granted any wealth that we may accumulate who is to gain our trust and our hope. He is unchanging. He is eternal. And He does bless with temporal riches and stewardship. And yet, in that blessing... He is to be the focal point. How quickly we move away from the giver to placing our hope, placing our confidence in the gift, the stewardship that he has given. The end of verse 17 says that he provides us with everything to enjoy it. Right? There's not a condemnation of possession or of wealth in the sense of either financial or temporal possessions that we accumulate those are for us to enjoy they've been given to us for the sake of bringing him glory and yet there is a real danger in human wealth that we be caught conceited thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought more highly than others and that we be caught hoping and placing our confidence in what god has entrusted to us and folks this is as universal as it gets we are all in danger of this danger of the rich undercut in their conceitedness their love for others and in their hope in riches it undercuts their worship and their exclusive worship 
of God, the giver of every good gift. And so this flies right in the face of the greatest commandment that we find in Matthew 22. What is the greatest commandment? That we love the Lord our God with all of our being. And what is the second greatest commandment? That we love others as ourselves, that we view them as important, that we pour out in sacrificial biblical love for others. Now, what is the temptation for the rich? Their temptation is to elevate themselves so that they do not view others appropriately, nor do they love them appropriately, and to place their hope and confidence and then in expression to worship their temporal possessions and riches and deny the one who has given them the worship that he's due. Okay? These are real dangers. But Paul doesn't stop with just a warning, which he has warned many throughout this letter. He goes on to not just warn us of the dangers, but to command the duties that are to accompany the rich Christian. So what are the duties? Well, verse 18 and 19 give us the duties for the rich Christian. Here is the opposite of the negatives that have been given to us in 17 as dangers. Here's the positive. What are they to do as rich Christians? They are to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This isn't difficult. There's nothing profound here. But these are great reminders. Hear the duty of those that God has blessed with much, with a stewardship of riches. Rich Christians must focus on being rich in good works. There is a wealth that is eternal. It is outside of your bank account. It is outside of your possessions. They are to do good, to be rich in good works. So what is to be the drive and the heartbeat of those that have been entrusted with much? It is no different than the drive and the heartbeat of those that have been entrusted with a little. They are to be bringing glory to their Father in heaven by the works of their lives lived out in grace. Right? The duty for the rich Christian is that they be first and foremost rich in lifestyle of good works. That that is, they portray the character that we talked about this morning and the person and the work of Christ. Rich Christians must focus on generosity and eagerness to share the second part of verse 18 says to be generous and ready to share. You remember back in Acts chapter 2? Acts chapter 2, very conclusion of the chapter, verse 45. The believers, brand new church in Jerusalem, they're meeting together, they're praying together. Verse 42 says they're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread, that is the Lord's table, And the prayers and awe is upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And obviously the implication would be those who had much could sell more for the sake of meeting the needs within the body. Those who had less could sell less, but were equally willing to share and generous towards those in need. So understand, folks, that the message of the New Testament is those who have been entrusted as Christians with riches 
have been granted a greater responsibility. They're granted the responsibility to guard themselves against pride that sets in with financial wealth and blessing, guard themselves against hoping in their riches, and then they are to pursue as a way of life a rich life that is a rich in an eternal sense in good works, and they are to be marked by generosity and readiness to share. This just hits us all. This is right stomping on our toes. Okay? As we used to say in high school, Paul is getting up in our kitchen. Right? He's up in our grill. He's in our face. He's right here, and he's saying, Hello, American Christian, you are wealthy. You are rich. You have excess. Don't become conceited and proud and think that you are better than someone else because of what you have. Don't place your confidence in it. And be concerned first and foremost with an eternal riches, which is based on the fruit of our lives is lived in grace. And be ready to give, be generous, and ready to share. Just a side note, sometimes we're quick to say that we're ready to share and that we want to be generous. That never really plays out in our lives. Maybe it's time to take a step back to look at what God has entrusted to us in its entirety and then ask the hard question of how am I living out? How am I living out my calling as a believer to be generous with what God has entrusted to me and to share that with those who are in need? Are there active ways that I can do that? That I can live out what I see to be the calling for those who have excess, those who are rich in this present age? It won't last forever. You can't take it with you. But in pursuing godliness and works that are bringing glory to God, you will be rich in the eternal sense. And by being generous and ready to share, you can store up for yourself, and this is what verse 19 says, a treasure in heaven. The result is found in verse 19 of this lifestyle for the Christian rich. If they are to live out their stewardship, here's the result. Thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future. And folks, that's not the future as in a 401k future. That's not uh, generosity that somehow gains interest. This is generosity. This is a life that is rich in good works. Why? Because it is storing up a treasure that's a foundation for the future. That is, this is an eternal treasure. And so the rich who live in accordance with what God's Word has to say about their stewardship, are actually laying up a foundation for eternity of a true treasure. Not only that, but here's the purpose that's given. Here's a so that phrase, and we always like to mark those out. Verse 19, so that, here's the purpose, here's the finale, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. The true life. And what is the true life? Another word that goes with life that we use often that would be the synonym for that which is truly life. Anybody? Starts with an E, ends with eternal. Trying to give you some hints. All right, eternal life, right? It's an eternal perspective. This is the pursuit of a treasure that is not stuck in this life, but it is grasping and looking forward to and taking hold of what is truly life, eternal life. 
our life spent before the presence of our Christ. So we've got the dangers and we have the duties. The implications are that there are real pitfalls to having excess. And we don't think about them much, do we? We are in a culture that says there are no pitfalls to having more. In fact, it is the highest virtue. He who dies with the most toys wins. You've seen that bumper sticker. It's not true. He who dies with the most toys had the most responsibility, particularly within the church. So we need to renew our minds with the reality that we are in danger. The richer we become, the more God blesses and entrusts to us, the more danger there is that we would become conceited or that we would misplace our hope and our confidence. And our responsibility level is heightened. That we be rich in good works, that we be generous, and that we be ready to share. Money that is entrusted to you is God's. Right? You are a steward. I am a steward. We are managers. We're not possessors. We're not owners. This is something that we can understand here in our community. We are managers of someone else's possession. And the someone else is God himself. And so as believers, we have been entrusted with a possession for his purposes, for his ends, for his goals, and for his glory. And that includes your bank account. That includes my bank account. And that includes the possessions that we have been given. That leads us then to verse 20 and 21 and the end. Okay? The end. Oh, Timothy, you almost feel Paul's emotion. He loves Timothy. This is his young, young brother, his son in the faith. He wants so desperately for Timothy to be successful in God's eyes at Ephesus as a pastor, as a young leader dealing with false teaching. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Timothy, the implication would be, is not entrusted with a bunch of riches, but he is entrusted with something much greater. He's entrusted with a deposit that came from God in the gospel. It is a doctrinal deposit. And throughout this letter, he's been called upon to guard that, to fight for that, to keep it pure, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. This goes back to the error of this particular group in Ephesus that pursued myths, genealogies, conflicts, arguments about words and details, all for the sake of some hidden secret knowledge. Paul says, avoid that irreverent babble. Isn't that a potent way of saying it? They're just running their mouths. It doesn't make any sense. It defames God. It is irreverent. And it's just babble. And it is contradictory. It is illogical. And it is useless. And it is falsely called knowledge. Paul says it's not knowledge. Whatever it is, that's a false title. You say, why is Paul so concerned about Timothy guarding the deposit and avoiding these distractions to the gospel? Well, he tells us why he's so concerned about Timothy. Verse 21, for by professing it, that is, the false knowledge, by professing this knowledge, some have swerved from the faith. What is he concerned about most? He is concerned about young Timothy's purity in the faith. Because those who have professed this, you remember we've gone to Acts 20, when Paul met with the elders from the Ephesian church, 
and some have swerved now from the faith. They have become the wolves who Paul promised would come in in sheep's clothing and attack the church at Ephesus. And so Paul concludes with this final word to Timothy. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. And then there's this one last phrase, and this is such a comforting phrase. Grace be with you all. Maybe you don't have an all. I don't either, actually, in my translation. ESV has grace be with you, and then it has a little number two. And If you go down on the bottom of the page, it says the Greek for you is plural. This is a good southern translation. This is y'all, okay? Grace be with y'all. Paul now broadens this because he knows Timothy is going to get up and he's going to read this letter. Timothy is going to bring this before the Ephesian church and he's going to use Paul's words as a basis for instructing the church. He's going to use this letter to fulfill Paul's desire in verse 14 of chapter 3. I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay in coming, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. He's going to read this. And Paul's desire is not just a flippant conclusion. He desires grace. Grace for all of them. Grace for those who have swerved and departed from the faith to return to the truth. Grace for those who have never known the truth to be rescued from their sin. Grace for those who are abiding in the truth to be sanctified and to grow. Grace be with you all. What a fitting conclusion. This letter has brought me to a place of desiring grace and understanding my need for grace. It sets the expectation high. It should do the same for you as we read it and study it together. It should demand of us, I cannot accomplish this in and of myself. Paul ends with the fitting word. Grace. Grace to you. Grace to all of you. That's Paul's final prayer. This is the conclusion of 1 Timothy. I wrote my notes. That's all, folks. That's it. No fanfare. Just a concluding word to the rich. A quick word to Timothy to make sure that he's guarding the deposit. And then grace prayed out on all that were there in Ephesus. And indirectly, under the Spirit's inspiration, grace prayed out for us tonight. As those who have encountered the living word of God in the epistle of Paul to Timothy. Here are the concluding remarks that I wrote down as just a summary. The church is Christ's, and it must be protected from corruption. The leadership within the church must guard their doctrine and examine their lives for the sake of the gospel. The church is diverse in its components from rich to poor, but singular in its goal. The rich in the church have a specific danger and a specific duty. Young Timothy must stand firm in teaching and proclaiming the truth. This is a tremendous letter. Brief, to the point, concerned with very specific issues, dealt with as an encyclopedia for the church, right? First Timothy is one of those letters that we go back to when we think of a specific passage. Is that man qualified to be an elder? Well, we just think, well, let's go to First Timothy 3. Right? We have sections in this, in, this, in this letter that are very important to us, and yet as a whole, it is a, an outline for us of what we are to be within the church. It sets the expectation both for leadership and for those who are under the leadership 
within the local churches, all under the head of the church, Christ himself, as given by his apostles. 